Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today's podcast goes to the very roots and heart of Business Fights Poverty. We are going to deeply examine poverty. What is it? Where it occurs? To whom? Why? And what can we do about it? I am joined by global expert and leading thinker, Sabina Alkir. She directs the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, OFI, at the University of Oxford. Sabina has dedicated her academic career to understanding what poverty really means. She's going to delve into the data. So get your pens ready. This is a conversation with big numbers in it and some very important rays of hope, as well as some really practical ways that we can all take action to alleviate the impacts of poverty. So Sabina, welcome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So Sabina, to open our conversation today, I really want to explore what poverty means. Together with Professor James Foster, you developed the Alkir Foster method of measuring multidimensional poverty. Would you share with us a little bit more about what led you to this work? Yes, I am very much a student of Amartya Sen in an intellectual sense. I've never been his actual formal student. Uh, He is an Indian economist who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1998 and has taught in Oxford and in Cambridge, in LSE, at Harvard, and in Kolkata and Delhi. And his idea of the capability approach, which says that development activities should focus on enabling people to expand the capabilities they value and that they have reason to value in their societies is really what we should be focusing on. And when it comes to poverty, it means that in that space too, we need to ask what are the valuable states like being nourished? What are the valuable activities like having a good job that are how people flourish and how can development activities support them? And that's important because usually poverty is measured by money, but as Aristotle said in Amartya quote, Wealth is merely useful, but for the sake of something else. So I had been wandering in my various previous studies into Sen's work on capabilities, into listening in a participatory way to poor women, men, and communities, and into thinking about what monetary measures of income generation activities were overlooking in terms of friendship or relationship or meaningful work, et cetera. But I hadn't figured out how to measure it. And James Foster is a preeminent person on measurement. And I heard him give a paper where he was talking about chronic poverty. And I realized that those kinds of approaches could be extended perhaps to multidimensional space, but I wasn't sure. And so that started our conversation. Wow, what inspiration. And I can really feel the kind of gray brain cells working in, in my head anyway, as you took us through that journey. Sabina, you've recently released a report for the Global Multidimensional Poverty Index, which you produced as part of OFI and with the UN Development Programme. Why is this index so important? Why do we even need it? And and how is it different from other studies? 
So the Global Multidimensional Poverty Index 2021 has a theme of its analysis and it's unmasking disparities by ethnicity, by caste and by gender. And so that analysis tries to meet the recognition in our times that ethnic and racial disparities are structural inequalities and that they must be fixed and that this is the time to fix them. So what that report does is it shines a light on 2.4 billion people for whom we have ethnic identity data for the head of household. It's not perfect data, but it's the best we have. And it looks at how great the disparity is among different ethnic groups. And it's surprising that across 41 countries, the ethnic disparity is greater than across subnational regions in 109 countries, for example. It's very high in that the difference between the least poor and the poorest ethnic groups in Gabon and Nigeria reaches 70 percentage points. And it's not in just one region. In Vietnam, the ethnic minorities make up less than 14% of the population, but 47% of the poor. In Bolivia, the indigenous groups make up 44% of the population, but 75% of the poor. And so country by country, region by region, we try to understand using a very flawed data environment. And yet even with these markers, we're able to see some of these disparities and draw attention to them. And the second figure we highlight is about gender. And just to explain that, I'll give you a bit of background very, very quickly, which is that the Global Multidimensional Poverty Index is a common measuring rod that looks at health, education, and living standards dimensions and 10 indicators within these across 109 countries and 5.9 billion people. And of those 5.9 billion people, we found that 1.3 billion over one in five were multidimensionally poor. They lived in acute poverty. And so we were wondering, given that we've been talking about girls' education and the importance of having an educated woman at home, we wondered how many of those 1.3 billion people who are multidimensionally poor have an educated woman in their household and how many do not. And so we looked at girls and women and we defined education as completing six years of schooling as a proxy. It could be something else, but we, we chose that. And then we found that of those 1.3 billion, actually two thirds of them, 836 million, do not have a girl or woman in their household who has been educated. And there are girls or women in all of these households. And that's a little bit of a sad number, but again, it's very important because if we are working on girls' education, education, especially in the wake of the pandemic as children come back to school, we need to know why it's important and particularly why it's important among the poor. As you say, such important data and really shines a light on where opportunity well, the challenges are, and then the opportunities are too. Sabina, I wondered whether these findings have changed over time. Like, how have they ebbed and flowed? Are there any sort of positive stories that we should be really kind of latching onto and trying to build from, or particular areas that, you know, are potentially going backwards? Yes, there, there are both, but it is a positive story in many senses. So this year we cover trends over time for 80 countries who are home to 5 billion people. And in 70 out of those 80 countries, there has been a statistically significant reduction in those countries in at least one of the periods we measured. 
And so that's a positive story. It's showing that there is change. And the most people that came out of poverty was India, where over 270 million people came out of poverty in a decade. The fastest country was Sierra Leone. Of the 20 fastest countries, 14 were in sub-Saharan Africa and three in South Asia. And these are the poorest regions in the world by our measure. So there are lots of positive stories. Oh, yes, and 23 countries reduced all 10 of our indicators significantly of one period. So it was a very balanced reduction of poverty. And in some countries, the very poorest region had the very fastest reduction of poverty. So it's catching up. And that was the case in Liberia, in Nepal, in Bangladesh, Senegal. So there are very much positive stories that we need to learn from. There are also some less happy ones. In 18 of the 28 countries where we have trends over time, there was a slowdown in the more recent period in absolute terms. And there's a problem with children. So of those 1.3 billion people who are poor, one half of them are children under the age of 18. And so when we looked at trends across 80 countries with children, we found that in 24 of the countries, children had zero reduction of poverty. And in a total of 38 countries, either children had zero reduction of multidimensional poverty, or else they did reduce it, but they reduced it more slowly than adults. And remember, they are poorer. So they are, in a sense, being left behind. So that's a very sobering figure because 38 out of 80 countries is nearly half. So that's something really to keep our eyes on and to put our minds and creativity into redressing. God, it's not until you get the actual data that you really can start sort of picking it apart. And I wonder whether that be sort of leads me on to my next question, really, which are the drivers behind this. So clearly this is, you're talking about the kind of out, outputs and outcomes. What are the drivers do you see that are really impacting the findings? There's so many answers to that. And so you can approach it from different ways. We don't see a clear story that the only driver is economic growth. We see a lot of activity in social policies and infrastructure and community-based activities and potentially in business-based activities as well. But here's some of the complexities. So I'm going to go back to the gender finding with 836 million poor people living in households without an educated woman. Well, in some of those households, to be precise, 215 million, there is no educated woman, but there is an educated man. So that's a situation of gender disparity and that the driver of that gender disparity could be different than in the rest of the household where actually, very sadly, both a man and a woman or a girl and a boy are, have not completed five years of school. Nobody, nobody has girl, boy, man, woman. So those are kinds of findings where we realize that some of the deprivations might be driven by gender disparity and some by other things. We also noticed that 84% of the poor people live in rural areas. Now, just to put that in context, of those 5.9 billion people, 55% live in rural areas. So it's more than half, but it's not the vast majority. And 45% live in urban areas, but 84% of poor people live in rural areas. And so clearly there are drivers of poverty in terms of how rural areas are not keeping up with the basics of having water within 30 minutes of a walk that's clean or adequate sanitation that's not shared or not being undernourished 
or having electricity or having your children go to school. So that really draws our attention to some of those groups. And the other driver is that we see some countries where very sadly poverty has gone up and Central Africa Republic is one where poverty increased significantly over time. And so we are, of course, doing studies and encouraging others to do studies on the impacts of macroeconomic crises, of conflict, of climate crises, and other intervening factors that make it even more difficult to reduce acute poverty. Fingers crossed that we can make some difference. And that's what I want to move on to next. I'm curious what we should do about these findings. Sabina, what what do you feel are the kind of actions that we should be taking given this data? So one is is really basic, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say it to a august audience like this, but the numbers are not really complicated. And I continue to be quite interested that we perhaps haven't really grasped some of these numbers. So if I, I mentioned that, you know, one half of the poor people do not have an educated man or woman, girl or boy in their household. Among the non-poor, how many do you think that is? So there's 1.3 billion poor people. Half of them don't have an educated boy, girl, man, woman. And there's 4.6 billion people who are not multidimensionally poor. But only 4.2% of them lack an educated girl, boy, man, or woman in their household. So they're really clear numbers that signal what we can do, which has to do with lifelong learning, vocational training, recognition of certificates, children who complete schooling as, as one example. So it's not detective mystery that's terribly, terribly difficult to solve. And also sometimes the resource requirements for some of these are not so huge. So 1 billion of the 1.3 billion poor people cook with a solid cooking fuel, which means firewood or dung or charcoal, which is bad for our environment, bad for their health, bad for their eyes, and clearly a a COVID risk factor. And so there's a clear win-win across the energy movement, the climate groups, to move to clean cooking fuels. So it's a very important focal area. And something like clean energy. So half of the poor cannot turn on a light when night falls. They have no access to electricity, not a solar lamp, nothing. And so if these people are connected to any kind of clean energy, it's going to be very important because actually we did a study and we found that 99% of the people who are deprived in electricity are deprived in something else. They are definitely among core, multidimensionally poor people. So the first might just be really focusing on thinking about poverty in somebody's context, wherever, whatever country or situation that they might be focusing on, because it's it's very understandable, it's very accessible, data are online, and it does tell a story. And then there are many businesses that are engaging in different ways. I'll give just three examples. Uh, one is that businesses are doing a survey of their own employees to find out who is multidimensionally poor in their own employee base so that they, with appropriate privacy and ethical protocols, they can understand if there are ways that they can appropriately support their own employees. And so both address the global challenge of poverty and also animate, motivate, and demonstrate solidarity with their own workers. Another way is by measuring the social aspect of ESG by using multidimensional poverty metrics and thinking about how their activities can have wider effects 
on their value chains or on some of these macro indicators. And then the last is in the areas of, of work, sometimes there would be very low hanging fruit of ways to engage with other NGOs or actors who are working very actively with communities. And again, doing this appropriately, because at the end of the day, any of our actions are not going to end global poverty because the real protagonists are the poor women, men, and children themselves. And so our activities really have to be in an attitude of collegiality. So when the World Bank interviewed people who had come out of poverty and asked them, what was the most important reason? Was it a, a government scheme? Was it a re relative in the city? Was it a loan you got? Was it a kinship network, an NGO, a faith-based group? 77% of them said, it was actually my own initiative. I had to put together the pieces. And so what businesses can do is also reach out, but in, a, in an attitude of entrepreneurship, where the entrepreneurs are the poor men, women, and communities, and supporting them to be entrepreneurs and to make their way forward. Their creativity and imagination is vital for themselves, but also for this wider world. Thank you so much sharing that. I think like just taking such complexity in terms of the numbers and the depth of that data and then just being able to turn it into some very practical steps, for me anyway, very useful. Thank you. And I was just wondering, we're not talking about crystal balls here at all, but if things did start going the right way, what do you think the possibilities are? Where's, where's the hope for you in terms of this research and, and it going forward? I think the hope is in what we have seen in real life. So we have witnessed China, which reduced rural poverty by over 90 million people, providing livelihoods, education, health care, uh, access to infrastructure, housing with appropriate facilities, as well as livelihoods. And that is a very, very prominent example. Earlier, it was focusing only on monetary poverty. And in the more recent work on poverty reduction in China, it focuses on multidimensional poverty. So that is a, de a demonstration. I already mentioned India, where 270 million people came out of poverty, where the poorest groups, the scheduled caste, the provinces like uh, states like Jharkhand or Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, had the fastest progress, um, where children reduced poverty strongly. Another example, which is very inspiring in our time, is Sierra Leone. So between 2013 and 2017, Sierra Leone reduced multidimensional poverty from around 78% to around 54%. And this was the same four-year period when the Ebola crisis racked the country. And so it was a time of very, very fast responses with lots of pressures, decisions being made with very great uncertainty. And yet, despite the messiness of that, they reduced their multidimensional poverty very strongly. So I think there are cases of success that give me hope and that show that whether it's a, a low-income African country, whether it's South Asia, whether it's East Asia, whether it's Latin America with other examples, it's certainly being possible on the ground to see the kind of pace of poverty reduction that would be required to really put acute poverty on, its, on the defensive. So the question is whether in the wake of the pandemic, when poverty will have risen somewhat, despite our best efforts in some countries, whether we could put that energy and that determination back in to making this a inflection point, a turning point on poverty. And so that we, we actually could ask and encourage many other countries to join 
that group of very de dedicated actors. And we have the privilege in OFI, in my research center, at being part of a South-South network of countries focused on reducing multidimensional poverty network. And you see their commitment and you see their energy. So my hope very much is that enough people, again, the entrepreneurial energy in United Nations and governments and businesses and NGOs and among poor communities will galvanize and be able to turn this corner because it's it's really not so difficult. It's not going to empty the, the purses of the world by any means. We can do this and most people would not feel any hurt. So that would be the hope. Oh, I love a good hope. That's fantastic. Fingers crossed. And I will put the links to that work and the index into the words that sit alongside the podcast. So anybody listening, you can follow up, get involved, join the mission and hopefully eradicate that poverty that Sabina's outlined for us, as you say. So it's possible. To round off our conversation today, you are a pioneering academic, You're really well regarded, really making a difference and leading some amazing work. For those listening, I was wondering if you had some advice. You know, we, we're very much a peer support network. We kind of care about helping one another. And what would be your advice for somebody who's sort of aspiring to make a difference, whether in academia or otherwise? What are the, perhaps the lessons that you've learned on your journey? And, and how would you advise somebody else wanting to do that too? I don't think any of us can do it alone. For us, we work on a team. And without the team, we, we, I don't think we'd be here. Because when one person's down, another one can pick them up. Um, when one person goes off and gets into a little rabbit hole on something, then somebody else can call them out and say, look, you missed this. So I think having a, a real functional support system of people who keep you on track, who can give kind criticism when it's needed and a shoulder when it's needed, that that's certainly very important in, in our collegial and professional work, as well as in other realms. So in OFI, for example, our co-founder was the former president of Oxfam America for 11 years, came from an NGO background in women's world banking and action aid. And so having that very much more policy focused and community focused uh, energy alongside you know, the academic was very, very healthy. And it, it's a tension because you're pulling in different directions, but you know it fundamentally, you're both going to the same place and you'll get there better if you stay in, in dialogue with each other. And the other thing is not to be afraid of failure. I've failed a lot. My papers have been rejected, my funding proposals, all of that. And it happens. And sometimes people feel that the, the only reason you don't fail is that you don't stop at failure. You keep going because <laughs> everybody fails. And so uh, when there are discouraging po points in time, because they do come, doors are closed, and visions perhaps that you had don't work out, just, just to keep going. Because I think it's when we just try it in a different way, at a different angle, with a bit more wisdom than we had the last time, or try the same thing again, and it works this time. I think it's that kind of dedication to a topic. And I, I would like to just mention there that my example comes from Amartya Sen. He has a Nobel Prize. He's a very highly regarded academic in theory, in philosophy, as well as in economics. But he does not tire of talking about hunger and primary school children and the need for us to do these very basic things, it's not too simple for him because the problem hasn't gone away. And so I think when it comes to poverty, we just have to keep sticking in there, keep raising the issues that are true, even if they're not new, because until they go away, <laughs> somebody has to keep 
observing them, studying them, finding them interesting and motivating others to continue engaging until we reach a different situation. Well, on those wise and important words, Sabina Alkir, thank you so much for sharing your time, your insights and your important information with us today. Sabina, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 